Back this morning to the book of Genesis, I invite you to turn with me this morning to Genesis chapter 38, where we'll pick up again in the history that we began to consider last week. You'll remember that uh, from last week that we've come to Genesis 38 and in this chapter to a very sordid piece of history, of our history, or maybe more precisely of God's history, the history of his redeeming of people out of the world to be his own. It's a piece of history that um, had you or I penned uh, the scripture would no doubt have been left out. I mean, imagine for a moment writing a history of your own family line. Would you include stories of infidelity and incest and immorality and illegitimacy? Would the dark secrets and the skeletons of your family closet be aired for the world to see and read about? Were you writing your family history? I doubt it. But this history was not written merely by men, but by the Holy Spirit carrying men along, guiding their minds, hearts, and pens to write what he pleases, what he pleased in his sovereign providence. We've read by way of review about Judah, the son of Jacob, and the brother of Joseph. He has left the house of his father behind, cutting himself off, from the circle of the covenant, counting the things of God unimportant and insignificant. Instead, he has made for his company the wicked Canaanites and has even married into them. And now he lives like them and acts like them as well. Then for his eldest son, Ur, he chooses a Canaanite woman to marry. Her name is Tamar. But so wicked is Judah's son Ur that he dies before he can have children, before he can have an heir with Tamar. So in comes Onan to uh, pinch hit, we might say, for his uh, brother to give his late brother an heir and, uh, and a child as the law had it. But he turns, Onan does, he turns an upright uh, duty into a dark opportunity for repeatedly satisfying his own lust, while at the same time avoiding competition among the heirs. Instead of completing the sexual act so that Tamar gets pregnant, he withdraws himself from her on time to spill his semen on the ground, and death comes to him too. So Judah promises his third son to Tamar in marriage, though he hasn't the slightest inclination to give him to her, and thereby in his mind lose her, lose him to a woman he has come to view as a black widow. You remember the solution that Tamar concocts when she sees that it is so. She veils herself and goes to a place where she is confident that her father-in-law Judah will think her a prostitute and proposition her for sexual service. It works according to plan. And after securing his signet and cord and staff as a deposit for payment, she obliges him. He comes into her and she gets pregnant by her own father-in-law. That's where we pick up at verse 24 of Genesis 38, but first to prayer. 
Our Father in heaven, only the sovereign God, who, as you have told us, even in calling us to worship this morning, is above the heavens and the earth, could take, direct, use such history as this in a way that would bring him glory and honor and praise and good for your people. Yes, even us here. So, Father, we pray that you will show us your goodness in all of this filthiness, that you will show us your power over all of the thoughts of man and the concoctions of their hearts, and that you would also, Father, apply your grace richly to us, your people. For your great name's sake, for your glory, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis chapter 38, beginning at verse 24. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, Please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah. We notice that in the Hebrew, in fact, it's even stronger than that. She is righteous, not I. And he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore his name was called Perez. Afterward his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. It was, I confess, my intention this morning to move on from this passage to the next uh, chapter, but conscience constrained me. We heard plenty last week about Judah and about the amazing grace that saved him and that turned him and granted him repentance and faith, the same amazing grace by which we are saved. But we had very little to say directly about Tamar. The scripture, however, compels us to stop and to consider Tamar's case. Because scripture itself is not satisfied just to give Tamar a sort of passing nod. As a matter of fact, we're going to read about Tamar much later again in the scripture. But in a most exalted place. You remember where that is? Tamar's name, along with the names of three other women, Rahab, the prostitute, Ruth, the Moabitess, and Bathsheba, the adulteress, these four will appear in nothing less than the genealogy of Jesus, of Christ himself, as recorded in the book of Matthew, chapter 1. As a matter of fact, there are several remarkable things to say about Tamar, all of them having direct application to us here today. And they are these. Tamar's significance. 
Tamar's saintliness, her sinfulness, and her salvation. First note well with me the significance of Tamar. Significant, I say, because of the significance that Scripture attributes to her, which is itself very significant for two reasons. She was a woman, and she was a Gentile. That the Scripture should draw attention to a woman, to mention her by name, to record her history and visibly weave that history into the history of Jesus Christ himself is truly remarkable. Even into the, the history of Christ she appears. Genealogies otherwise don't typically include women. Look at the lists in Genesis 5 and 10 and 11 and 36 and 46. You will not find them. Scour the genealogies in First Chronicles and Ezra and Nehemiah, even the lesser records in Numbers 3 and Ruth 4, and you will find that women's names are not found anywhere. Now, there may be good reasons for that. Of course there are, even if only cultural. But it only makes it all the more remarkable then that when Jesus came into the world, women appeared along with the men in the record of his ancestors. There is also a lesson for us in this, brothers and sisters, as well. While the Bible does clearly maintain a differentiation of roles between men and women in the family and church especially, at the same time, the Bible confronts us along with every other culture to which it goes, with a particular view of women. While a traditional Jewish prayer, and one of you told me recently it's still used in some Jewish circles today, says, I thank God I was not born a woman. And while other cultures veil their women and treat them like second-class citizens, even the possessions of men, and while almost universally women are treated as sexual objects to serve men's pleasure, the Bible, and especially our Savior, comes along with a radically different view and treatment of women. They are to be loved, they are to be respected, and remarkably they are to be considered of absolute importance for the advancement of God's kingdom. By placing women in the genealogy of Jesus, Matthew is as much as saying that without these women, there would be no salvation because there would be no Savior. That, my friends, is the significance of Tamar and of countless other women who were indispensable to the provision of salvation for men and women alike. And that, brothers and sisters, simply must inform our own thinking about the importance and the dignity and the indispensability of and the honor due to women in God's kingdom. 
But Tamar is not only, we may say, alas, surprisingly significant as a woman, she is also surprisingly significant as a Gentile. Gentiles, you remember, were the outsiders to the covenant. It was always so until the time of Christ. Gentiles that came to share in the blessing of God's covenant were always the exceptions, which is why they were so truly remarkable. Even in Jesus' day, it was understood as Jesus reminded the Samaritan at the well, another woman, by the way, and a Gentile, that salvation is from the Jews. In other words, it was to be from the Jews and to the Jews and for the Jews that the Messiah came first. Jesus was a Jew, and he came to the Jews. But he not only come, did not only come for the Jews, he came also for the Gentiles. There were others, he talks about, to be added to the flock. Brothers and sisters, you are those others. You were the outsiders, and I. We were, not to put too fine a point on it, we were, are, the Tamars. We are the Canaanites. Yet God has taken note of us as he has Tamar, and he's included us, not because we're worthy, far from it, quite the opposite, in fact. We were, as Paul puts it in Ephesians 2, strangers to the covenant of promise having no hope and without God in the world. That was us. But God, because of his grace, has seen fit to include us, to graft us into the covenant people. And Tamar is one of the great evidences that God has from the beginning intended that his covenant should extend not only to the physical commonwealth of Israel, but to the Gentiles as well, to us. What more can we say then, looking upon Tamar? But praise God. Praise God for his, his grace that he's extended beyond the borders of Israel to Gentile dogs. To us. And to all who will identify with God's work of redemption through the Savior. Tamar would identify that work, which brings us to consider, second, the saintliness of Tamar. Now you're thinking to yourself, wait a minute, what do you, what do you, what do you mean the saintliness of Tamar? She played the harlot, didn't she? She went and put herself in a place where she might be mistaken by Judah as a prostitute. She exchanged sex for money. What's so saintly about that? Yes, that is true. But it is not for nothing that the Holy Spirit records the words that he himself first placed on Judah's lips, that Tamar is righteous. She was the righteous one of those two. Indeed, she is truly, she is the heroine of this entire story. Of all the people involved... And this is the very height of irony because she's the foreigner. She's the outsider. 
I say, of all the people involved in all of this intrigue, all of this mess, it is Tamar alone who has an eye for God's covenant. It is she who was concerned about perpetuating the family line. She who had an eye on producing descendants for Father Abraham. You see, Tamar, the, the foreigner, like Melchizedek in chapter 14, or Abimelech in chapter 26, Tamar's the one who here is looking by faith and sees God at work in the line of Abraham. She sees the opportunity to be a part of the covenant, to advance the cause of the covenant, to enjoy the blessings of the covenant, to align herself with the family, the family, through whom all the families of the earth would be blessed. And it is through the likes of her that the blessing was realized. She is, it has been observed, she is the forerunner of Ruth who said, your people shall be my people and your God my God. In fact, while everyone else was merely satisfying his lusts here, she was laying down her own life for a greater cause. Think of it this way. What sort of risk did Tamar take in becoming pregnant while betrothed to Jacob's son? The penalty, she knew it, was death. Death, in this case, by fire. And indeed, before it was all over, she felt the flames of those, fire, of those fires at least from a distance. And what is more, do not let any one of us think that Tamar may not have been just as horrified as we are by the way she had to accomplish these things. She was probably even more disgusted by the whole thing. But it was what it seemed to her was what the moment required. And in that way, in a true sense, she laid down her life out of love for God and for his covenant. I tell you, whatever else may be said about Tamar, she emerges from this history as the heroine. And on the day that you see her in heaven, Christian, it will be a great honor for you even to engage her in conversation. In fact, it is to her among a host of faithful women that you owe and I owe an untold debt of gratitude for our own salvation today. For without them, in a very real and true sense, there would be no Savior. And you would be today and would remain forever lost. You see, Tamar gave birth to Perez. Later on, Rahab, the prostitute from Jericho, she married Salmon, a descendant of Perez. She, in turn, then became the mother of Boaz, who married Ruth. And then from that marriage came the line that led to King David, and from King David's line came the Christ. But had Tamar no interest in God's covenant, 
Had Tamar just walked away from Judah's wicked family, there would have been no Perez, no Salmon, no Boaz, no David, no Christ. In other words, it was the Canaanite Gentile woman, Tamar, who turned the tide of the covenant in a dark day when the covenant people of God were all but lost. At this point in the history of God's covenant, it comes to a thin thread, and that thread is Tamar. Now let me ask you, Christian, with what passion and to what extent are you willing to be a part of advancing God's kingdom? I'm not saying that you should imitate Tamar's actions, of course not. But how much of Tamar's spirit lives in you? How much of her passion of her devotion to seek Christ lives in you. To be faithful to His covenant, to see it continue from one generation to the next, to lay down your own life for the sake of God's covenant and for His glory. What are you willing to give up? What have you already endured? What have you suffered and are you willing to suffer for the sake of Christ? What amount of money... What amount of work and effort? What personal sacrifice? The example of Tamar requires of us an accounting from every one of us of our own faithfulness or lack of it for God's crown and covenant. Now, Tamar is remarkable for her significance, both as a woman and as a Gentile. She's remarkable for her saintliness. But there's another thing to take note of. Third, her sinfulness. For all of the sacrifice that Tamar made, she was still a sinner. I suppose that one could argue that Tamar's incest might run somewhere along the lines of Rahab's lies to the officials in Jericho when they come and came and asked her about the spies that she had harbored. Whether Rahab sinned in that lie or not remains a debate to this day with good men and principled on both sides. I frankly doubt that Tamar's actions rise to that level, that the end justified the means. But the fact is that all of the women in Jesus' genealogy are tarnished at best. Tamar is known for incest. And even if we cleared that charge, she was still a Canaanite. Rahab was a prostitute. Bathsheba was an, an adulteress and probably a Hittite, married to a Hittite. Remember that whole sordid scene, Bathsheba bathing on the roof and spied out by David, and the next thing you know, they're in bed. And while we don't have a, a rap sheet on Ruth, we do know that she was a Moabitess. And so with her people under the curse of God's law. It seems like it wouldn't have been too difficult to come up with at least a few more sterling examples to include, if you are going to include women at all, in the genealogy of Jesus. He had more admirable ancestresses than this. Surely he did. 
Though even the fifth woman, his own mother, was thought a bit shady, showing up pregnant before she was married. Why include them? Why mention these sinful women in the line of sinless Jesus? Martin Luther takes a stab at the reason. He says that it is so that no one should be presumptuous about his own righteousness or wisdom, and no one should despair on account of his sins. In other words, in coming to Christ, none of us can say that we do so righteously or sinlessly. No one is wise enough, no one righteous enough. None of us can say, like the rich young ruler said of God's commandments, well, I've kept all of them. Now, if you're going to come to Christ, it must be as you are. It must be as a sinner. A sinner in need, in desperate need of salvation, with nothing to offer to him but the sins from which you must be saved. That's it. There are, as Pascal put it, there are but two kinds of men. The righteous who believe themselves sinners. And the rest... Sinners who believe themselves righteous. You see, those who believe themselves righteous, those who think themselves pretty good people, they will find nothing in Jesus. If you think highly of yourself, you will find nothing in Jesus. In fact, you'll be repulsed by him and repulsed by his family, especially these sinful women. You will find nothing in him for yourself because you believe yourself to be in need of nothing from him. Ah, but Christians, I mean real Christians, know that they are in need and they feel nothing so keenly than their own sinfulness that they are really profoundly, comprehensively evil and that they've offended against the holy God with their sin and it was their sin that required a savior. They have, you have, I hope every one of you in the hearing of my voice have no pretense about your own hearts, no delusions about your own righteousness or wisdom or fitness or attractiveness to Christ. I say that because that is the one thing, that is the one thing that is guaranteed to keep you outside of this family, outside of the covenant, outside of God's salvation, outside of Christ. And on the opposite side of that coin, I do hope that none of you here are despairing on account of your sins. I hope that you are not saying to yourself, I'm so wretched, I'm so sinful, and I commit the same sins over and again. Now that you may say, but I hope that you are not saying then that there is no way that I can possibly be saved. That's another danger against which these women stand in the line of Jesus. They say to you, look... Look at us. We're sinful. 
We've broken God's law. We've committed heinous sins. We were the outsiders, and yet God's arm was not too weak. His grace was not without enough power to overcome even our sins. And if he can forgive us and use us not only to continue his covenant, but to bring into the world the very covenant head himself, Christ, why then he can forgive you and he can wash your sins away and he can make and secure a place for you in his covenant family as well. Which brings me to the last point. Tamar is remarkable for her significance, for her saintliness, for her sinfulness. But most of all, she's remarkable because she is forth saved. Tamar is saved. She and the other women in Jesus' genealogy, they were guilty of great sins. But they were Though guilty, they were saved. That's what's truly remarkable. They are, as I used to sing about myself as a child, in the old gospel tune at the Billy Sunday Tabernacle, they're only sinners saved by grace. And in that there is much encouragement and much instruction for you and for me. Martin Luther put it this way, and with this I finish. These matters are set forth for our consolation. Great saints must make great mistakes in order that God may testify that he wants all men to be humbled and contained in the catalog of sinners. And that when they have acknowledged and confessed this, they may find grace and mercy. To be sure, one must beware of sins. But if anyone has fallen, he should not become despondent on that account. For God has forbidden both despair and presumption, turning aside to the left hand and to the right. There should be no presumption on the right and no despair on the left. One must stay on the royal road. The sinner should not abandon his confidence in mercy. And a righteous man should not become proud. For the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him and in those who hope in his mercy. Amen.